Hey everyone, I'm Tom Shaughnessy and welcome to Disruptors by Delphi, an invite-only show where we host the brightest minds in crypto, not only to educate the Delphi team, but to share their vision and knowledge for the entire space. In this series, the format departs from a normal podcast conversation as guests are in the driver's seat, presenting their ideas with some Q&A built in, but at their discretion. Our goal is to find and feature only the most inspiring guests and to provide a platform for them to share their knowledge with the world. Each guest has put a significant amount of time into their presentation, so we recommend watching the video version at delphidigital.io or on YouTube. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive into the series. Today, we're thrilled to have on Brooks Brown. Brooks has worked on story worlds from Indiana Jones to Star Wars and John Wick all the way to Avatar. His directorial work has garnered him several awards, including a Sundance Film Festival jury selection and a Tribeca Film Festival Storyscapes Award. Through working with Brooks, it became abundantly clear how special a person he is. When you speak with him, all you want to do is sit down and listen for hours. It's truly exciting. Today, we're hosting Brooks to cover what changing what immersion means with Noor. Delphi is a proud investor in Noor, and this will be a presentation by Brooks with questions sent in our chat that will be addressed at the end of the presentation. With that, we open it up to Brooks. Well, thank you for the incredibly kind introduction, Tom. Uh, it is a uh, crazy thing for me to be here. It feels amazing. Um, it's been an honor to have Delphi sort of be one of the early people that when we met with when, when I had this crazy idea and we started really working on it and I had my team pushing it in front of everyone. The encouragement from Delphi, uh, the, the ability for us to see that you guys do have a real vision around what you want to be doing in crypto, that it's not just more of the same, was encouraging. And it's helped us really garner our vision and concretize it. And I hope to share a lot of that with you today because what we're talking about here is the nature of play. It's a thing that I've seen bounce around inside of the crypto space for the last, let's say, uh, two years, three years, five years. Uh, I've been doing random consulting work. What is play? Why do people play games? Where can crypto integrate into games? How can it all work? And I believe we have an interesting and unique answer. And I'm hoping that uh, I can communicate at least some of that today because in order to kind of get there, <laughs> We have a few things that we have to get through first before I get to what is NOR. And some of it, it's going to take a little bit. So uh, please bear with me. And again, don't hesitate to jump into the chat. Don't hesitate to ask questions. This is meant to be a bit of a back and forth. And as I go, um, please let me know if I'm not explaining anything well enough. Because uh, we kind of have to start at the beginning. And it's a big, big question. Because What is art? Uh, art is itself isn't an image. Uh, we like to think that we have this idea that there's pictures out there, that there's images out there, and that the image itself is the art. It is It is not the case. Art is the experience of the image. It is the experience of the person viewing it. It's a diagram of elements created for a second artist. There's always two artists inside of every painting. There is the person who painted it, and then there is the person seeing it. And nothing shows this more than Las Meninas. It's one of my favorite pieces, if you've ever read uh, some Foucault. It is one of the pieces that uh, the Order of Things mentions in extensive nature. Uh, Las Meninas, when seen in person myself, uh, emotionally I was fairly overcome because it's a unique piece. Now, 
it's on its face just a painting. It's a painting commissioned by Ferdinand the King. And the idea was he wanted a portrait and he wanted this artist to tell a unique, interesting portrait. And it is just that, a painting. But when you start looking through it and you start noticing, maybe you'll see Las Meninas, uh, the little ladies, as uh, it is their dog, who they are. What are they doing? Well, they're preparing to have their painting made, their portrait drawn. Well, you may notice the sort of creepy figure in the back. Who is he? Where is he going? What is he setting up? You may see the paintings in the back, which are actually two very old, very famous paintings about moments that man beat the gods at their own game and the gods struck them down, beat them with a flute in one case. All of this is because the artist himself is looking at you. And off in the back in the mirror, you'll see Ferdinand. Oddly, the portrait, the subject of the portrait is in the mirror, looking back at you, wherever you're standing near the painting, it's looking at you. The question is if Ferdinand's in the mirror, Who's actually looking at the picture? This journey that you get to go on is because paintings have a canvas. This canvas gives us boundaries. It gives us a space for our eyes to wander that we're able to go, this is what the artist wants me to look at. This is what the artist has put in front of me. This is what is on this odd stretched out piece of paper or leather or metal or whatever it may be. And video games too have a canvas. Now this, Kim Swift and a handful of other very talented game designers who went through a series of very, very good college courses gave a really good description of what makes a video game canvas. It's not as explicit as a easel with a canvas on it. But we have these three things. We have the mechanics of games, the dynamics those mechanics give us, and then the aesthetics, the, the way it feels, the, the after effect, the affect of the game. Spelunky, uh, if you haven't played it, I recommend it. Very simple Indiana Jones style game where you run through a uh, underground, ever-changing labyrinth of caves. Uh, steal treasure, kill bats, kill skeletons, get chased by evil ghosts, all of that fun stuff. Let's pull about and look at the canvas because with the whip itself, uh, this taken from a piece by Stephen Lavelle, also taken from a, paint, a wonderful presentation by Clint Hawking. I've never found a way to better describe this, so thank you, Clint, for not knowing that I stole this. Um, the whip in Spelunky, like in real life, requires you to wind back and then throw. This means it has to be raised before it can be hit. You don't just hit the button and it, out it goes, like a Galaxian or a shooter game. This means that Inside of this, the dynamic created is that it encourages a degree of premeditation. It creates an atmosphere of deliberation, and this slows the game down. This gives you a moment where you can actually say, wait, 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 where do I want to jump? Oh, if it's a flying creature, I have to hit before I leap or as I leap, depending on the arc. It forces a game to not just be the mechanic or the dynamic, but altogether with everything else that the game does, it makes you deliberately move through the space. This setup is the way that the canvas of a game works. It's how we, as people who play games, feel about it. These elements, this complexity gives us that emotion, that aesthetic at the very end. And so ultimately something is seemingly simple that we've never really considered as the whip in Spelunky or pick a game, choose a mechanic, is a canvas that we're able to actually play through where we, to play as the artist. 
in video games, we call this the magic circle, this, this place that the canvas plays within where these dynamics play. Because outside of the magic circle is the real world. Inside, we find where our own agency and freedom are. The same way that when a child is playing with Legos, uh, if you're not yelling at them, if there's not a million distractions, if they're free to just play. I have a four-year-old. It's wonderful to watch. Uh, it's a space where he is concentrating, feels free to explore, experiment, create. And if I'm constantly yelling at him as the outside world, eh, the magic circle switches up a bit. Inside, we have the rules. We have the narrative. We have the immersion. We have all these things that make a game what it is. And we have stuff that we bring to it. I have my past experience. I have the social norms of the society I live in. I have the environment I'm playing in. I have the cultural context that the game exists in, given the time, given me and my place inside of it. All these things from the outside world come with me. But the magic circle is fairly sacrosanct and important. The second part of this, because this magic circle exists, inside, we're able to actually play in a state of flow. And it's a psychological term. This isn't directly related to video games per se. It's uh, flow study is a big psychological phenomenon that happens to almost everybody. Because beyond just video games, when we're in that sort of odd state where we're in this perfect place of challenge and skill, we're able to flow. Now, some wonderful work by uh, someone who I cannot pronounce her name, uh, Mahaley. Uh, I just won't even... I won't even butcher it myself, uh, did some great work on sort of giving us a handful of places that people can be inside of this place where skill meets challenge. And you know this, everyone's been through it. When you have very little skill and you're up against very little challenge in a thing, it's just not exciting. You're just not interested in doing it. I highly suggest anyone play the game Candyland with a child. You'll know exactly the feeling. Now, the, the setup works in every direction, Specifically, though, you'll notice the flow is this high challenge, high skill place. This is where, where we get to play, where we get to sit. The third component of this, the third setup, is that um, you need to be so engrossed in the experience that other needs become negligible. The magic circle doesn't come out of nowhere. The rest of the world around the magic circle has to necessarily be out of it so that way you're able to be in this flow state. Now, how we've gotten to the point where we're at today and how flow state has evolved over time is worth going sort of back into history. Now, major event of the last 100 years, I would say, is the Trinity explosion. Uh, if you don't, for those uh, who don't know the name Trinity, it's the first nuclear bomb that was ever set off. Manhattan Project, the US, World War II, uh, put together this huge group who went out and figured out how to make a bomb. Now, this very one man who happened to be there, who was actually the head of a lot of the, uh, uh, the technology that they used to build this, to do the test, to set it all up, uh, his name is uh, Will uh, Higginbotham. He came away, we'll say, not excited about the prospect. Very few people there were excited uh, when they came away. But Will specifically came away and wrote a note said, uh, I'm not a bit proud of the job we've done. Only reason for doing it was to beat the rest of the world to a draw. Perhaps this is so devastating, man will be forced to be peaceful. The alternative to peace is now unthinkable. Uh, his letters from here on in the rest of his life became sad, uh, morose, uh, lacking hope in the world, praying for the world. He was, people called him a good man, 
but they said he had a fantastic sense of play. He loved games. Shortly after the Trinity explosion, he went back to his laboratories and sat around. He didn't have to worry about the rest of the world. He kind of already had that in its place. And he created the first video game. Of all the people in the world to do it, it's really fascinating. And, and how he talked about it, so Tennis for Two was the name of the game. It's precursor to Pong. Uh, he said uh, this line, I do want to read it. Uh, it might liven up the place to have a game that people could play, which could convey the message that our scientific endeavors have relevance for society. It feels, uh, feels happy to me. It's a, it's, a, it's a rare opportunity for him. Now, Tennis for Two was a fascinating game. Let's talk about its magic circle. Uh, inside of it is simple. The controller, two people, you hold this, uh, there's a knob. Uh, when you turn the knob, it aims where your shot is going to go. When you press the button, the ball is hit. There's no racket. You don't get to see it. It's just simply snap and it reflects, it bounces and it plays back and forth. This requires this aim to be contingent on the ball and how it's coming to me, how someone else is hitting it. Uh, don't want to overhit it. Don't want to under hit. It forces me to be deliberate, to anticipate, and this center game of skill becomes my entire world. Now, this was sort of in the back for a while. He took it to a few shops. He took it to a few uh, conferences. He had a lot of people play it. They had a blast. It was, he thought it was going to be the future of play in, in games and sports. And a handful of people saw it, and they got a chance to sort of run with it. Magnavox famously sort of took it and made the home Pong console we see here. Uh, Megavox Odyssey was a unique one. They basically turned this thing into this package people could buy as if it was a group of party toys. Uh, it came with uh, cards, chips, uh, fake money that you could use for gambling, uh, trivia cards. It was intended to be for a party. It's the first time people really had a chance to buy video games or play them, and this was giving them a chance. Of course, it was exclusive to Magnavox televisions. No chance hooking it up to anything else, but you know, that's kind of how this starts. Uh, what ended up happening with all of this though, was trying to recreate the arcade experience and the promise of games coming that were fun. And it didn't happen. I, for anyone who doesn't have rose tinted glasses of the past, this is what Pac-Man was on the Atari. Uh, this is not Pac-Man by anyone's definition of said thing. Uh, E.T. itself is sort of famous for this coming crash of the 1980s, and people blame it for a lot of things, but it's not really E.T. E.T. was a symptom of this larger problem of over-promising over and under-delivering games, because for the first time, people had to really buy them. Uh, video games, again, not a thing. Sports wasn't a thing people had to purchase, let alone have only on a TV and have as part of a very expensive ecosystem of other purchases. And so you'd get things like the Kool-Aid Man video game. Uh, this was a, uh, it's, if you can't see the text, uh, the picture is a simulated network game for the Atari 2600. Uh, it is simulated would be a nice way to put it. This is what it actually looked like. So when a child would get at home, a parent would get at home, or even a teenager, a lot of people, different people bought Atari games, will just say disappointment was normal. Uh, the goal of the game was literally to mix Kool-Aid and become powerful when you drank it. Uh, odd game. Now, the arcades, though, man, at the same time as this, they were taken off. They didn't have this issue. You simply played the games you liked, and they had to be good because in order to play, you had to put in a quarter 
every time. You didn't spend $50, $100, or multiple hundreds in today's money in order to even start. You simply would go in and play. And I put Tron in here for a reason, although I also put Star Wars Arcade in here because it's one of the greats. I could not help, and I to this day, if I see a Tron Arcade machine, I will pop quarters in that thing until I get the number one spot. I played a lot of the Tron Arcade game for a long time. I, I love that. The, there's a unique moment in the way arcade games work where I put in a quarter and it's as long as I can last. And it's on me. It's my chance to do it. Arcades always had this sort of strange setup like that because my skill could grow. How I interact, my flow state was possible, but not just flow state, the ability for other people to see that flow state, to have an understanding around it. Video athletes became a thing. Now we call them esports pros or whatever we want to call them now, but video athletes, that was the term they used. And man, did people gather together. Man, did people really just super get into these fucking games. If you've never actually seen it, it's really incredible to watch old stuff. King of Con uh, the old uh, documentary on the Donkey Kong guys, uh, which is a, it's a great, hilarious story, belies the real point. Arcades had viewers the same way that local tennis matches or little league games did. Arcades as games, people watched and people played and people practiced. It was unique. It was different. Now, the home market shifted after the crash. Out came Nintendo and they brought out a pile of games. And at first, they were trying to ape the arcade games too. You'd have three lives. We knew that one. And uh, things would get progressively more difficult. A handful of levels enough you'd go. If you've played any of these games, you know what I'm talking about. This was the chance to make them arcade games good at home. And then Shigeru Miyamoto had a different plan. Because, well, the family was playing this and they were selling content hand over fist. And they were selling a ton of these things. He sat back and said, you know, for a $50 game, we don't really have to worry about those quarters anymore in three lives we don't really actually have to worry about telling a person what to do. His first major game for Nintendo, Mario, you could only move to the right. The mechanics and dynamics are pretty particular within Mario. Mario's a wonderful game, but it did rely on those. With Zelda, he wanted you to have to not know what to do and force you to talk to people to find out why. The first thing you do in Zelda, inside of that deep, dark cave where you begin, is you have to talk to the old man. He's the one who gives you the sword. Take this. It's dangerous. Shigeru originally didn't want to include any information about the game. Force you to actually ask other gamers. How do, you, how do you beat this? Where do I go? How much time do I spend in this? And suddenly the game didn't have three lives. We call them lives. They're hearts. They're one, you have one life and then you die and you have to start over. The, the ability for a person to play inside of this grew agency changed what it meant inside of games because a $50 purchase now had content it needed behind it now had a chance to do something different than just pumping quarters after quarters into machines. Now in time we can say video games have improved, but underlying it's the same sort of thing. Here's link up against yet another shooting those little balls at him so he can bounce off of his shield. Uh, the, then the, the Octoroks of old haven't shifted a great deal. But underneath it, the games have become deeply complex, places of agency, places for us to explore. And the financialization was a big reason for that. Developers didn't have to worry about quarters. Now they could just do single purchase big things. Now, this changed. There's a game that came out called StarCraft. And a lot of people don't really talk about what made StarCraft 
as popular as it is. Now, I love StarCraft, but here in the West, this was another $50 game with a huge amount of single-player content. And the vast majority of people I knew when it came out was pe were people who beat it in single-player, occasionally playing the multiplayer. The thing is, in Korea, South Korea, it exploded. And we have that sort of current running joke of the stereotype of the South Korean StarCraft gamer. Well, it's not a shock. It's not a new thing. It's not a, a weird thing because at that time, uh, post-1980s, Korea was in a really interesting place financially. And as broadband became more adopted, as computers became a thing, PC bangs started popping up, these uh, internet cafes where people could just go and pay a couple bucks and sit and play. What does StarCraft have to do with this? Well, really at the time, people didn't pay for StarCraft. That was not a thing in Korea. Instead, you'd go to the PC bang, you'd pay a dollar or cheaper, to be very serious, uh, to play for a few hours. This changed how people played with the game. Rather than, for me, the single player content being the setup, you'd actually sit and play on the LAN and you'd practice and you'd play as if it was a sport. And this setup changed. All you had to do as a PC bang owner, if you had 12 computers, was buy 12 copies of this game you would eat that cost and you'd charge $2 to the person at the end. And so if you were a player, you didn't have to spend $40 on a game. You could try it for two bucks. And when you were good, you could charge two more dollars, two more dollars, practice, practice, practice. And the dynamics of StarCraft was pretty extraordinary, how it would grow, how it would change. This is actually where we saw a big shift in the industry and how we financialized games. Because how are you ever going to make money in all of Asia if $2 a pop gets a person an hour of your game. Well, you have to change how video games are purchased. You can't just sell them for 40 bucks anymore. You have to do what, well, ultimately Korea sort of mastered with the company Smilegate as they came out with Crossfire, the world's largest game that, as far as I'm aware, I don't know anyone who plays it. Uh, it's almost a billion people, I think, have logged in, used it at one point or another. They have concurrent user stats that you know, put every game on earth to shame. Uh, the idea of the free-to-play model was born here because of this. You couldn't make money giving games away for free. Developers have to eat. Financiers can't give money to people who are going to give away, money away, games away for free. So now we had this shift. We could charge people for items in those games. Let them play as much as they want. And let's give them a blue skin, a red skin. Or let's let them maybe have a shittier time with the game unless they give us money. We'll make them so it's slower. And you can pay me to speed things up. The nature of play to play for play to uh, free to play changed the financial model, changed how we made money, changed how we designed. And very, very quickly, we've now gotten to the point where these free to play games are onerous by anyone's measure. Uh, you don't have to look at the reports out of tons of governments that come out that are just very clear saying that. Half of whales are in gambling. We're talking about children, 12 to 17, who spend $50 a month on these games. Why, why do they do this? What is the setup here? Why do they play these games? Again, we're talking about art here, and we're talking about how this sets up. And this started moving over into what we might call the traditional game, the Zelda likes. Uh, this is a photo of uh, the first really, really angering moment for a lot of gamers when it came to microtransactions, horse armor in oblivion. Uh, one day, a lot of people woke up and you could buy horse armor in oblivion for about $2.50. Uh, that did nothing. It just looked kind of cooler. 
It was a single player game and it changed forever how people would regard their games. It upset a lot of people, uh, but it made an absolute metric ton of money. And as we started getting to the point where free to play games took over and the financialization of games shifted, suddenly we have games like War Robots where it's flatly pay to win. It is flatly so. Uh, this is an example of a hanger that is about $7,500 worth. You could just outright buy it. You could not buy anything. Well, you still have to spend $1,125 on the base robots, but then you could grind out the 612 days uh, it would take to level up to that. Obviously, no one's doing that. It's just not going to happen. So pay to win wins. Now, this is one of those things that when you start including pay to win, when you start including microtransactions, when you start including all of these things, you start seeing this magic circle that has sort of odd edges because it's no longer this solid circle. You have the mechanics in the middle, how shooting works, how movement works, but you also have wondering, just odd moments. I want to play against poorer people. I don't want to play against rich people. I'll tell you that for damn sure in all of these games. Well, do I have time to play or do I need to be doing homework? Because if I'm, gonna, if I'm not spending money, I need to put 212 hours a week into this game. Am I bad or am I just poor? Is, is, is there room on my credit card? Can I afford these purchases? It's really awful when you think about it. And where is your challenge and skill level? Well, it's one of the beauties of a lot of these games. And it's the reason a lot of people play it because they start to believe that they have skill. They believe they have challenges because again, a lot of that is based on the perception of what's within the magic circle. The nature of the magic circle here shifts and whales are really being abused. You end up in this really strange place where you feel as if you are this high skill in a fairly high challenge person. You're not in a flow state, but you're nearing it. You feel you're getting closer. The reality is you're not. You're in a low skill, low challenge state. They've manipulated people who spend a fortune of money. It's the way it works in almost all of these games. The famous example that we can talk about here, and I've actually heard a lot of people uh, in various crypto podcasts, of course, this is the moment people go to, they have a very, very significant misunderstanding of the anger around this. Diablo 3, Diablo's very wonderful game. I've played the shit out of way too many hours of this a witch doctor or a monk, depending on the title. I adore these games. The loop is pretty basic as it's set up. Now, Diablo 3 didn't have a wildly crazy loop from this. You basically go out, you do things, you do damage, you gain experience, experience leads to levels, levels leads to skill. Now, as you level up, you also gain stats, but also as you do damage, you get gold, gems, crafting material, which becomes gear. This gear increases your stats, which fuels this loop and it's a really good compulsion loop. It's very solid. They added an auction house and this auction house enabled players across the board to spend money. Uh, and you could just flatly buy the best items in the game. That was one aspect of it. The other aspect is you could sell all the items you don't get because as part of any, well, as anyone who's ever played Diablo knows, but as part of the Diablo loop is you end up with a ton of stuff that your character can't use or you don't give a shit about because it's not based on the skills and the way you've built your character. This extra bit of thing you usually sell for a meager amount of gold in game. And it's actually kind of a weird, frustrating moment when you have something that's like a really rare yellow item and it goes for nothing. 
So they added this auction house. The idea being that if I'm playing and I get some cool yellow item that only a witch doctor can use or only a druid can use, lo and behold, I put it up. And then Tom, who only plays the druid, he's got a couple extra bucks and he has less time. Why doesn't he just buy it? And this is the refrain I hear a great deal from our crypto friends. This idea, why can't I just sell that? I can then make money. I can set this up. And we point to the auction house and everyone thinks the anger here is because, oh, gamers hate pay to win. That has almost nothing to do with it because what happened is the game changed. The magic circle shifted. Why I played changed. This is Jay Wilson. Uh, it's my favorite flattering photo of the gentleman who basically gave us the auction house, championed it publicly and put it in front of us. And he said, and streamers said, and people said across the board, the issue is that item rewards became meaningless. Since such items could be found easily at auction houses, with that money became a major motivator rather than killing Diablo. People no longer played the game for the game. People didn't play the game for the mechanics. People didn't give a shit about the mechanics. There is technically in every Diablo game, one type of play that will do more damage and be more efficient than everything else. Players don't really care about that. Players care about having a level of creativity, about doing other things within it, having their favorite type, their favorite archetype, their favorite spells, their favorite things. That's what people care about. And Blizzard put this out and it crushed it because I will tell you right now what crushes every magic circle is if someone can pay their fucking rent because that's all that matters. If I play Diablo and it will pay my rent for me, I will play Diablo so it pays my rent because that's better than McDonald's. It's better than a lot of things. And suddenly the magic circle is almost irrelevant inside of the games as we know them because ultimately we have a problem now. We need to figure out how to solve this. I need to pay my rent too. I'm a game developer, but Tom, well, that's not Tom. That's just the first image Google gave me, but I put it anyway. He has to pay his rent. He's a finance guy. Uh, Dendi, my buddy, if you're not a fan of Dota, he's one of the, he's a very cool dude. Very, very nice player. Uh, Bait, wonderful Dota team. Follow them. They're having an off season. They're great. Uh, he needs to pay his rent too. We all need to pay our rent. Welcome to the world we live in. And video games themselves, through all of this history, have always relied on financing from somewhere, from gamers, venues, investors, whatever it may be. But right now, players are the perpetual financier. They play with money, and that money gives the cash flow. Whales have the startup capital, and we lie to them. We tell them that they're good at their games. We tell them that they're actually skilled when they're fucking not. We tell them these things, and we pretend as developers that that's okay. And then, the people who spend hours and hours and hours and hours playing, we thank them because effectively they're content for the whales. So if players are content and financing, what the hell do we do now? Just tough place for us. Let's take a look back. Let's go back to the magic circle because here's this magic circle of what I would say is the modern game the problems we run into, the different things, uh, as someone who's played a lot of these, a lot of mobile games especially, I run into this. Uh, anyone recognize anything that may be a part of the magic circle from some crypto games? For sure. It, basically, we've made gamers care about market forces, the, the social world, when they just wanna play. And, but with market-minded people, they're forced to care about orcs. That seems odd. What if instead of having this broken circle, what if we solidified it, ramified it, give it strength, make sure that inside of the game, everything's there. All this stuff goes around the outside, but maybe I don't like how I phrased these. 
maybe we can change and actually talk about the financial game that is actually being played, where people care about smarter investments, where they talk about how much risk they're able to take. What time does the Asian market open? I've got to be there when that happens. Wait, wait, wait. About those NFTs, who's got the data on what's selling? Well, my portfolio is not doing as well as Tom's. Is it because I just don't have as much money or is it because Tom's smarter than I am? This, this feels like a mechanics. This feels like its own magic circle. In order to see kind of what we do next, we would need a technology. And it would have to be something that existed to enable a ramifying of interactions and affirmations. Ideally, in the Nietzschean sense of affirmation of the distance between financial capital in an abstracted form and the core nature of human experience in the form of play. Actually, uh, I could probably just name this uh, section crypto as a thing. Well, technically, actually, this really comes before section three, because let's talk for a second about what crypto actually is. Hey, it's a fluff. Uh, it's an NFT. Their NFT is art. Uh, uh. Oh. Walter Benjamin, it's a wonderful writer from Once Upon a Time, talked about how the digital reproduction or reproduction in general is destroying art. Because to him, the ability to take a photo of a piece is not the same as the piece itself. The piece itself has what he called an aura. Uh, the idea that it had a feeling. Uh, there's a, I was recently watching Billions, and there's a scene where Paul Giamatti talks, so he's talking with someone, and he's like, uh, I'm pretty sure it was the real thing. And they're like, no, rich people put the fake ones up, the real ones they put in storage. And he's like, no, there's a feeling you get when you're in the presence of the real one. I felt that. That's the aura. We get that. We don't get that from digital things. No matter how much we may think we do, it's not really how it works. And if there is an example of that, it is these people who I hate, and I'm sure I have a few of you here, a few of you watching this, nothing like someone filming a concert in front of you or an entire audience. It's not the same as being at the concert. That's why we're there and paid for tickets. We know this. NFTs, they're interesting. They serve really one purpose. They're not art, the NFT at least. They're not items. They're not a thing. They're this embodiment of actual existence in time and space. Their aura itself added to a digital thing that has not. Uh, not to get too wonky and nerdy, but there's no such thing as an original JPEG. JPEGs aren't even pictures. They're technically decoded lines that are processed as they go through. There's no photo sitting on your hard drive. We know this. It, the first photo you've ever saved from Photoshop, that image you may have on your phone somewhere, that's not even the same image. It's a different version of it that's been copied and copied and copied and the original erased. We've, we have a world of digital where all that's lost. This NFT is a weird one though, because it makes this moment, this digital thing have permanence, have reality inside of time and space. NFTs are weird. NFTs are strange like that. And crypto itself, all of this is sort of enforced by this larger smart contract system. I'm not going to explain how smart contracts work. That would be dumb. That's not what I'm here for. But it's important to know this is how NFTs are regulated. This is a series of mechanics that dynamically come together to create an aesthetic, almost like a game. So let's talk about what NOR is. NOR is my project. And actually, this is the first time people are hearing about it. This, when this goes live, this is going to be it. This is our announce. We haven't told anyone about it except people under severe NDA. So thank all of you, by the way, for being those people. First rule we know, 
and what nor is. Play requires an unbroken magic circle. There are not exceptions. Yes, you're allowed to like whatever games you like. This is not saying they are not games. They're games. They're not play. There's a difference. There's just a difference. It's not a new idea. This is not some crazy thing that I'm making up out of stuff. We've lived this with sports for our entire lives and beyond our parents' lives as well. There's no such thing as money in soccer. Now there's money around soccer, but it flows around the game. It doesn't entomb play. It doesn't change play. On the pitch, no one has to worry about whether or not they're going to eat dinner that night. They may worry about that later, but the people who are good, it's actually kind of how sports works. If you have your head in the game, if you're not focused on the outside world, if your eyes on the ball, whatever shitty sports reference you want to use, it's about knowing that magic circle is important, keeping that things tight, keeping that thing set up. FIFA, as an example, has extremely strict rules about how every single one of their uniforms needs to be. Famously, a few years ago, um, I think it was Cameroon, uh, pictured here, uh, used a one-piece outfit instead of following these guidelines, and people lost their shit. Uh, you know, the leaders of FIFA, it turned out they had already submitted them and because they ha you have to submit your uniforms to FIFA in order to have them in play, and someone had approved them, but maybe the guy at the top hadn't. It was this huge controversy over the slight style change in a single piece of fabric. This is because to FIFA, there's nothing more sacrosanct than keeping that space clean that keeps the finance out of soccer. And I know FIFA's famously not a, a group of people who are greedy and only after money and only care about money and don't care about the game at all. I'm sure there's nobody inside of soccer who would say otherwise. Um, I'm saying I would like us to be maybe ethically better than FIFA because this is not how video games really work. And by the way, let's go back. StarCraft, as a real sport, the idea of esports in South Korea was the same thing. The magic circle was intact. There was no microtrans. Go take a look at how StarCraft 2 is doing versus the original StarCraft. It's not. It's not a thing. So for us, it's simple. Nor is free games. Not free to play. Free as in beer. As in, if you see me and you like the games, buy me a beer. That'd be nice. I mean, come on. Uh, we're not going to charge. We're not going to set them up. We're not going to have any of that shit. We hate it. We are players who hate it. We're developers who hate it. We think the magic circle is important because we want games that mean something to a person. Well, with that, though, rule tool for us is flow depends on skill and challenge, freedom from distractions. This is a tougher one because I have a lot of friends who work at these companies. But there's nothing in Battlefield like running up against Santa Claus or whichever outfit you can tell me which character that is in Overwatch. It took you a second. It's May. Uh, I don't even know. Or a hot dog shooting at Batman, shooting at Spider-Man. Uh, these outfits in all of this are microtransactions that basically utilize your love of an IP, your love of being silly, to add things to a game that actually are just distractions. It's all they are. I mean, we know this because in video games, we have an understanding of a thing called silhouette theory. The way it works is when you're playing a video game, it's important that every single bit of information you're getting, especially in fast games like the ones I just showed you, 
give you all the info as you're playing and imminently, immediately that you know who you're up against. Team Fortress, the example here, is so good at it. Well, at least they were. You could see from each one of these guys kind of what they're supposed to do, but damn right, you can recognize and tell them apart at a glance just from their silhouette. You don't even need their colors. Now, compared to Overwatch, you can tell a lot of information from the pure silhouette of the heavy versus Araya. Now, I, again, I love Overwatch, but which direction is she facing? Does she have a weapon? Well, heavy, which way is he facing and does he have a weapon? It's even clear in black and white, but let's make it a slightly more obvious contrasted play. I still can't tell anything about the character on the right. Turns out her gun, it's uh, pointing that way. Heavy, he's going to kill you. The ability to see that stuff is instantaneous. It's required inside of these games to have that. Uh, Team Fortress, over time, uh, you're free to tell me which character that is. It takes you a second. That's the difference between life and death in all of these games. So for us, it means no microtransactions, no vanity items uh, inside of the gameplay itself, no purchase pathways in the games at all. For players, they're not going to spend money. Uh, yeah, I know, it sounds weird, uh, but I do mean that, and I'm quite serious when I say that. There's just no way. They can't. It's not an option. Now, what do we do about our whales, though? Because whales exist to spend money. How do we handle them? What do we do? Because really, we've trapped them inside of our magic circle. All of you whales who love the marketplace, the metagame, the playing with things, the, the chesting all of the meta storylines and how to buy this or do that. Uh, how, how do we treat you? Well, for us, it's simple. We want you out of our magic circle and we want you into your own. We move the financial game itself to its own magic circle. So gaming within both circles are affirmed. I wasn't talking this entire time about video game players who sit on an Xbox. I'm talking about people. Anyone who interacts with this is playing. We consider everyone who touches this a player, and that includes the financial side of it. Of course, take EVE Online as an example and tell me right now that the people who play that game and are into the financial side aren't players. Of course they are. So we have our two circles. We separate them. We call them the games and the market. And we want to make them both fun, but we need them to be separated, set out a little bit differently, utilizing crypto tied together. So we do some really fun stuff. On the one side, it's easy. It's the players play the games. Wonderful, easy, done. The other side, we're going to have land. We're going to have people trading NFTs, buy-in staking token, destroying other people in the marketplace, all the things that make the game of the market really exciting. To get there, though, I want to talk about a country in the Philippines. Wonderful Philippines country. I love it. One of the things that's really interesting about happened there is there's this uh, uh, product that's come out. As a few years ago, uh, coconuts. Once upon a time, people in the Philippines would have these wonderful farms and on it would be coconut trees. People from the West would visit and they'd be like, oh my God, I love coconuts. These are so fucking good. They'd buy coconuts for a reasonable price and they'd come back. Someone in the West was like, you know, actually, what I'd love to do is I'd love to buy lots of coconuts at once. So they started importing coconuts and coconuts have taken over in the West. I mean, a few years ago, coconut water was literally everywhere. This is Southeast Asia's done this is this where it's came from so people were buying all of these awesome coconuts but at some point they realized actually i know you own the farm that you're selling me these coconuts on and i know you're producing these coconuts i'd like to buy the farm 
and then I'll rent the farm back to you. I'll make a few changes perhaps, and then you can sell me those coconuts and I will pay you, don't worry, completely fair wages, you'll be fine. And so these people had perfectly fine livings and were able to feed themselves with a large farm, sold the farms they lived on. And this larger farm became monocultural. Everything was torn down and replaced with coconuts on the vast majority of these farms. And suddenly the people who once upon a time actually owned the ability for them to feed themselves and were selling these coconuts now don't. And of course, now that they have no bargaining power, the price of coconuts has fallen precipitously and they're getting paid less and less for the same amount of work ultimately. As this happens over time, there's actually a coming coconut crisis. And it's a big challenge for a lot of us because as we look at the world of the Philippines and things that come from the Philippines, we should remember the coconut because coconut trees, it turns out, only live for about 15, 20 years before they really stop really harvesting. And as we have those coconuts not really showing up anymore, all of these people who we were so happy that we were able to rent land to them so they could produce coconuts that we could buy won't have a farm to work on because there's not going to be any more coconuts. For us, we don't like the idea of selling coconuts. We don't like the idea of renting coconuts. To us, we want our NFTs to be real. Our NFTs, we want to matter. We want play to be the fuel. For us, we want the economy to run free. We want all of this to run free. We are Dow first. Everyone owns a piece. Everyone who takes part in this sets up. We want DeFi to be really the center ethos of how this works. And we call what we're doing not play to earn, but play-fi. The idea of an economy that is a game is something that is not new. Every video game that's ever made an economy side is something that economists adore. Uh, the economy itself plays like one. We talk about it as if it is one. So why not ramify that magic circle? Why not give them that game? Why not build a city with land, with people in it, with NFTs that are allowing all that to happen and have play be at the, at the center of all of it? Now, wait, wait, wait. You may be saying, Brooks, you earlier said NFTs are this odd digital thing in Aura. What the fuck? You just said they're real. How are you doing that? Well, for us, we're talking about NFTs this whole time. For us, NFTs are players. Every player gets one. Everyone is unique and it is wholly controlled by that person. It's ready to be traded, staked, thrown together for a team, however the fuck they want to run together. And however we design those contracts and those contracts are allowing them to play. Because for us, the NFTs are not for the sake of a market. The NFTs themselves matter unto themselves. We are letting NFTs connect people with the thing they actually care about instead of forcing them to overlap and cloud with a different circle, with a circle they don't give a shit about. No one in finance should give a shit about orcs and someone who's killing orcs shouldn't worry about whether or not they're eating dinner that night. Every player of both circles should have a chance to play their game without being tricked into playing someone else's. And so for Nor, it's easy. Players are the NFTs. Any player in any circle, they own their data and their self totally. That's how it's supposed to work. That's the ethos of crypto, at least what I was told. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I know anyone here is thinking, but wait, where's the player risk? It's, uh, I'm going to be throwing in my ETH into this. That's a huge risk. I've got a whole bunch of things I'm doing. Sure, I'm not worried about whether or not I'm making rent, but it's still a risk. I am taking that risk. How do we do anything with it? 
Well, that's easy. For players, it's easy. Death is forever. We burn your fucking NFT. That's it. When you die, you die. The physical real world matters. When Messi goes out on that pitch, he is not able to play 100 games that day. The reason that game matters is because Messi chose to play it, because the great players chose to play it. Michael Jordan chose to play it because he can play a game a day. Two games a day would be a hell of a thing for any athlete. It beats the shit out of your body because we're real. Let's bring that to games. It's the last step. It's the last little thing that really matters. We've taken games away from the arcade where my skill, my time, my effort is the embodiment. Let's return to it. Because in order to make winning mean something, losing has to mean everything. Thank you for letting me talk to you today about NOR. Please join our website. We're sending out newsletters. We're really excited about what we're doing. And I am here for the remainder of the time as Tom or anyone else may want to ask questions, may want to talk about any of this. Brooks, that was a phenomenal presentation. Um, goes without saying how much expertise you have here. And uh, I think we're all blown away and we're still kind of digesting. I, I had a few questions from our chat. Uh, one, one from uh, someone inside Delphi who's known publicly as Coley B. He wanted to know what you think made World of Warcraft so great back in the day. Um, well, back in the day, I'm going to assume you're saying vanilla. Um, there's a nature to content-based games. Uh, and there's a, there's a division between, it's, it's tough for me to sort of get into, uh, high-level version. Games work because of their mechanics. The mechanics are defined by, as I said, it's the whip, the movement, things like that. The dynamics of these things are what ultimately give us the emotion as we respond. When we have content in a game, content can play the role of those things. An example would be Uncharted, for example. Uh, Uncharted has times where I'm shooting things, but for the vast majority, it's a hyperlinear. The mechanics are simplified. I'm just moving through. And the content inside of that game is what gives those things meaning, the images, the way I have to move, the things I have to do. In Diablo and World of Warcraft and a lot of looter shooters, the dynamic is actually the craziness of all of those different items you can get, the different ways they can interact, the mathematics, the min-maxing. I played Warhammer for a little while. If you've ever been a Warhammer player, this is the world you live in, where it's literally trying to get that extra two damage, that extra four damage, that extra three armor, whatever it may be. This is the dynamics that produce the emotion. The problem with doing it as content, which is what they did, this armor set is this, this armor sets that, at some point, you need more shit because people figure out what works and what doesn't. And that subscription model of World of Warcraft inevitably, like all of these games that utilize items that have stat changes, any game that does this necessarily ends up on this weird ladder where either people burn through all of the content and they figure out min-maxing, which thing's the best for their class, their creative field, whatever it may be. The other side being you keep churning and you create content and you create content because ultimately the dynamic place you're playing in requires new. It never stops. And it's an easy thing with a person. It's the uh, difference between chess and World of Warcraft, for example. I've never ever cared about really the chess set I'm playing on. I'm not sure if I've ever given a shit that it's red, blue, black, white, wood, ivory, metal. Chess is chess and go is go. And these games have a timelessness to them because they give that dynamic nature without the other side. 
those games rely wholly on content and content needs to be continually pushed. At some point, the fun dynamics of how a rogue moves is supplanted by the overtly complex nature of the 900 different items a rogue can have, which means that the people who give a shit are the people who can handle having thousands of stats on their screen at the same time. I'm not one of those people. I left after Burning Crusade. Makes sense. And Brooks, I mean, in your presentation, and a key part of Nor is the idea of permadeath. I mean, we've spoken about this at length offline. And when I first met you, I was like, oh, you mm -hmm. know, I would never want to play and, and lose all of my gear. But when you told me the story about, you know, how much time people would spend to accumulate things and how it would actually matter if you can lose it and how people around the world would want to watch people put that time and energy up in something like a stadium to potentially lose it. How did you come about the idea of using permadeath within Nor? Well, it, it's, it's one of those things. Um, my favorite movie from the 80s is The Running Man. And it sounds silly because it's a terrible film and it's a wonderfully terrible film. It knows what it is. I like movies that know what they are when they're kind of that weird, cheeky, odd thing. The world of The Running Man as a thing is one where people basically, and let's do some inferences here, when Arnold Schwarzenegger is thrown in there and we have the gladiators going after him, the, the, the seekers, Arnold has actually worked his whole life to get in that position. If they put in someone weak, for example, no one gives a shit about that game. It's actually the early plot point of why they pick Arnold, why they do this. They find him, they end up framing him, all this. They need someone who's a badass. They need someone to get ratings. They need someone for people to give a shit about. Yeah, it's a cynical joke, but it's not wrong. We only really care about watching people who've got one, something on the line, but two, have reached that point where they have the high skill versus the high challenge. We want to watch that. If you've ever watched speedrunning, if you've ever watched Twitch, feel free to watch someone who is overskilled playing a game that is boring. That's not fun ever. You, you, you want to watch someone who's playing the crazy thing against the crazy thing. So if I take that and I add it to the fact that really what's the running man's about underneath it all is that Arnold Schwarzenegger, strong, badass soldier guy trained his whole life. And now all of that training is on the line. And the reason it's exciting for us as a fictional audience, watching a fictional movie made up by people in a fictional world is because we don't know kind of what that outcome is going to be. And that's the exciting part because it's final. We know when someone dies and that it's done. We've gone away from that in video games. Uh, how many times can you watch a person play Fortnite and not care when they die? Uh, despite the weird rage buildup that, you know, some streamers may pretend to have. I've played a lot of video games. I don't rage very often. Uh, games and death matter less unless they matter totally. Rust is one of my favorite video games of the last decade. I have too many hours. And also I recommend no one play it. Uh, I, I call it the asshole simulator. It's not a, it's not a fun game for people. Um, but when you die in that game, you lose everything. Like that's, that's it. You, you respawn as a naked human with a rock and a torch. Um, and it is frustrating and emotional. And I care about losing. I care about running. I'm able to get in that headspace. So if we can marry these two things and play with the idea of seasonal or global times where people practice, they play, we have our games and they're set up not dissimilarly to sports, but at some point, people have to decide to go in and choose. Am I willing to put it all on the line? Die a million times in our practice games. We don't give a shit. Practice tennis at the club with a robot that shoots balls at you. No one's going to watch. No one cares. Practice. Ideally, like Michael Jordan, 
practice more than you actually play because that's how you get better. That's how sports works. That's how life works. So we need to allow that. But at some point, we need to give people the chance to really put it on the line. And to do so, everything needs to be on the line. You can't, if I, if Michael Jordan could play 20 games in a day, would you give a shit about watching any of them? It's great color, Brooks. One question we had come up from Jose Macedo, who's our head of labs, was that he loves the idea of NFTs giving meaning by virtual death. He'd love to know your thoughts on using VR as the medium. So how will the meaning of owning an NFT as a player change when you could embody that NFT um, in VR? And what do you think death means in VR as well? Um, so I, I worked in VR for a few years. It's uh, my, my piece that you mentioned, Hero, that won Tribeca and Sundance, uh, was a VR piece. Um, uh, interactive walk around, Unreal-based thing, uh, 40 by 40 square foot room, uh, VR headset. Um, I, I tend to be a very big believer in the idea of how we play within ourselves, especially in VR. One of my favorite VR experiences um, that has ever existed, and I can never recall the name whenever I bring this up, um, it's a, two VR headsets. Each one has a webcam on it of sorts that's tied into the other one. Uh, you as a man and a woman on the other side behind curtains uh, disrobe, uh, wear your underwear, and you put the headset on. When you go out, you're actually in a woman's body, a tiny petite woman or this poor girl, uh, a giant, hairy, overweight guy. Um, the weirdness of being inside someone else's body and how you then treat not just yourself, but those around you is powerful. And it's a unique part of the VR medium. The way, it, the way you approach how you behave is determined by how you think other people are seeing you. It's a very complex process that produces your reactions, that produces you inside of everything. The ability for me to play around and switch or play with the NFTs, there's, very, there's a lot there. Specifically with Noor though, we're big on the idea of, um, how to put it, um, fungibility in personality. Well, the NFT is, embodies me at any given time, and I'm generally Brooks. It should behave not like the real world, in my opinion. This is pure opinion. I don't actually have any weird theory like I do for the art stuff to back this up. Um, my ability to play around and explore who I am is sacrosanct to the digital world to me. Uh, once upon a time, I enjoyed being on 4chan. I enjoyed being in these weird anonymous parts of the world. There's a lot of harm that can be done in all of those places. I will not say otherwise. But the beauty of digital is that I don't have to be who I am and that the idea of identity is able to shift. I would love to see us embracing that more and embracing exploration of ourselves through these things. The ability for the NFT to embody that and be my digital persona, as you saw in Nor, for us, uh, a person owning their data and owning themselves, having that level of uh, uniqueness, having that level of self-control is absolutely important to the entire process as well. It's awesome, Color Brooks. Just to keep going with questions, we have one from Jeremy Paris, and his question is, what piece of advice would you give any play-to-earn founder creating a game right now? How would they build some of the principles that you shared into the game that they're making, or would they not be able to? Um, I mean, it's entirely possible. I'm not, I don't have an idea of all the different varieties of play-to-earn. What I'd say is don't look over the market right now and do what everyone else has done. The genealogy of video games, as I've laid it out, and I think convincingly, does a job of saying, We've got free to play as a thing, the mechanics of it, which are far less about making a game and more about getting time spent, money spent, churn. It's a business. It's a website that you click. 
that mentality exists to solve a financial problem that came about specifically in Southeast Asia. And we've incorporated in a lot of different ways when we didn't need to. I'd argue that you should go through, find the pieces that work of free to play, find the pieces of these things, the little machines that make up the much larger story of what's happening and find new ways to configure them. Um, the, the shortest version would be don't make coconut trees. That's not, that's not the setup. If what you're doing can be analogous to coconut trees and the process of how that's gone over time, you've made a mistake because ultimately the only reason anyone works those coconut farms these days is because they have to. If tomorrow I went to every coconut farmer and I gave them a hundred thousand dollars, none of them would ever touch a coconut tree again. If I went to every Dota player in the world and I gave them a hundred thousand dollars, all of them would play Dota all day. That's the kind of difference we're talking about. Don't make coconut trees. Awesome, Brooks. And one more question from Ryan Fu on our gaming side. He asks, in your view, why did StarCraft II not reach the same zenith as StarCraft, given that there's also no magic circle around gameplay? And also, why has this not changed since Blizzard made it free? It's because, it well, they, they made it free-ish. Um, so there's a very interesting scandal around StarCraft Remastered, specifically in Korea. Um, I would say StarCraft II never took off in the States. I mean, they all sold. We all played it. That's great. It's a normal game. It never hit the levels because StarCraft, people who, PC bang owners who bought StarCraft in like the late 90s, who actually bought a legit copy, most of them didn't. At some point they did, still bought a copy per person. StarCraft Remastered and StarCraft II changed their business model from a purchase to a rent. So you actually have to pay them per hour that someone's playing StarCraft Remastered versus just a single purchase. So these things didn't take off. Like it's it's just a matter of uh, financial, cultural changes that have moved over here. Oh, we're fine over here. $50 game, sure, I'll give you $10 for skins on top of it. Also a $70 fucking expansion pack, $100 for the collector's edition. Is that a black outfit? Yes, I'll pay you a thousand. Like for some reason, we're very cool with that. PC Bang owners actually sued Blizzard over the push to actually charge them uh, per hour. Because to them, the ability for a person to come in, and it's a cafe, this isn't someone renting StarCraft. This is someone renting a computer, getting food, having a social experience, was important to their experience. There's a reason StarCraft is still absolutely the biggest thing over there, and it's because it's access. Uh, Free-to-play did some amazing things for the world. I'm not shitting on it. it. There's a lot of really good parts. Free games is the thing it did. It changed how we dealt with that. Dota 2 is an amazing, it's an amazing sort of story around all of that because, uh, I mean, all these free-to-play games. My buddy Dendi is a great example. He doesn't come from a wealthy family. He's, he's from Lviv in Ukraine. He's not from some rich family. He and his brother go to the local PC cafe and Dota, the original Dota, was a Warcraft expansion that everyone pirated Warcraft for. Again, free. <laughs> it's just the nature of the late 90s. People didn't pay for a lot of shit if you haven't seen the documentary on Napster. So the way it worked is he played, but so did a lot of people. Now you go watch the International any, Do any year in Dota. My buddy Moritz uh, does the documentaries for a lot of those and flies to places. You know where he's not flying? He's not flying to Manhattan Beach in LA. He's not flying to Manhattan in New York. He's not flying to Hong Kong like downtown, he's flying to poor areas because how it works by the law of large numbers is that the best players don't have a lot of money because most people don't have a lot of money. 
So the ability for free-to-play games to reach them, to run on the cheapest stuff, to be at these PC banks that are part of these social experiences, changed how people engaged and made them sports. We don't have that in the States because everything here is paid. But if I had to pay $500 to play soccer with my son, the first time we ever went out, instead of grabbing a beach ball and kicking it in the backyard, which is how he started playing his first game of soccer, would I ever? No. Rich people would, people with money would, but soccer is literally a democratized sport because you just grab a ball and kick it. Like this is how, this is how games are meant to be. That's the beauty of what we did get from free to play. So Brooks, just to round out the permadeath idea, I think there's been a lot of talk in the past about why hardcore PVPs kind of failed, right? How do you think Mm -hmm. NFTs, crypto gaming, nor kind of changes this or kind of addresses this issue? For us, the ability to add players as that point of data and give them control of when they enter what we might call uh, mortality. Uh, Everyone, let's just say everyone in our space, in our world, isn't immortal for the most part. And at some point you get to choose to sort of uh, enter the space of mortality. When you're playing, the ability to just play and do it over and over, the game doesn't have to be hardcore. The game needs to be good. It needs to be skill-based. It needs to not rely on microtransactions or weird min-maxing, but instead reliant on the ability for me to judge as I move. Should I be hitting spacebar? What's happening? Should I be shooting? All of those fun things. That line to make that hardcore by turning on permadeath is something that you just can't do in a lot of games. I don't actually know of a lot of ways to just enable ultra hardcore in a way that's going to have the same pool of players that I practice with move over to that space. It's difficult. Take uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, more hard games, Rust. Uh, Rust has a hardcore mode. It's the whole game. Uh, There isn't really an option there. Diablo players who play hardcore don't mix with normies. Like it's these, these things are designed to be hardcore in their mechanics For us, the game mechanics should be sacrosanct. The player should be the thing that gets turned on to be hardcore. It's one of the big changes we make and one of the big switches is we remove from the game hardcoreness and it becomes the player. It's again, just like sports, Shaq plays basketball with his friends. Do you think he plays hard? No, what he practices with him, he plays. Some he probably plays very hard with, Um, but like that way basketball works the hardcore mode is when it's the fucking finals in the NBA that that's hardcore mode. Like that matters, but the meaning around the game necessitates that the economy around the game necessitates that the player is what makes that hardcore. My knowledge of them and how important this game is to them makes it hardcore, but he's playing basketball the same way I play basketball. That's probably giving myself too big of a fucking compliment, but it's the same overall basketball that we're playing. It's the same soccer. It's the same football. It's the same chess. It's the same go. It's the same Dota. I play with Dendi. I play Dota. It's the same Dota. Why can't it be the same everything? Brooks, I could barely shoot a basketball, so I think we should play together. Uh, (laughs) But anytime, anytime. Brooks, thank you. I would love to play against you. Trust me. (laughs) I can't. uh, I can't find my way forward on that one. So. Brooks, I, everyone from Delphi seriously appreciates you coming on and sharing your knowledge and your vision and you know just the accumulated insight you have over being so involved in the space for so long. So we're thrilled to have you on as the first Disruptors by Delphi guest, and we really, really appreciate your time today.
And thank you again for having me. And thanks again for all of your support and uh, the continued support I know you're going to give. Thank you so much, Brooks. Let's talk soon. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on your podcast app, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter or LinkedIn. Stay tuned for the next episode. Out soon.